Blog Talk Radio. And I and is made possible by Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I am your host, Katie Jackson, and today our guest is Dr. Jordan Schultz. Jordan Schultz is a pharmacist who graduated from the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy in 2013. After completing his two-year residency, he began providing clinical uh, pharmacy services to patients with neurodegenerative diseases, including Huntington's disease. In addition to his clinical um, work, Jordan conducts clinical research that focuses on, one, understanding the pathopsychology uh, of Huntington's, or sociology of Huntington's, okay. sorry, and, the, um, and identifying environmental factors, including medications that may modify the disease course of HD, which is really interesting to me. So we will hear about this a little bit later in the show. Um, I'm excited to hear about that work, but I am excited to have Dr. Schultz. We had him at our symposium this year in Iowa, and that's where I got to meet him for the first time. And um, I didn't think this would be a big topic uh, for HD families, and so I was, I was shocked at how much our community really wanted to hear about, uh, hear from a pharmacist. His room was packed with people. There were actually people standing up um, in the room um, that really wanted to talk to a pharmacist. And then it kind of all made sense to me that, of course, um, a pharmacist would play a huge role in our journey, um, navigating our way through living with HD. So I'm excited for the show. Uh, thank you so much, Jordan, for coming on with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, let's start, let's start because at Symposium you were discussing the difference between an SSRI and an SNRI. Can you briefly explain to us the difference between the two classes of medication? Yeah, so I guess the first thing uh, to realize is that both of those classes of medication are typically used to treat symptoms of depression and, uh, and anxiety. And they're often used for other things as well, like obsessive thoughts or apathy. Um, and in these conditions, there seems to be an imbalance in the brain between some important chemicals that help to regulate a person's mood. Um, so one of the most important chemicals that can become imbalanced is called serotonin. So generally, when a person becomes depressed or anxious, there is less serotonin available in key areas of the brain. So our goal with SSRIs and SNRIs is to increase the amount of serotonin that's available for a brain to use. Um, so SSRI stands
stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, and SNRI stands for Serotonin Norepinephrine Reuptake Inhibitor. So both medication classes work by increasing the amount of serotonin in the brain, um, but Serotonin, again, isn't the only chemical that can become imbalanced and lead to depression. Uh, Norepinephrine is another important chemical. So the main difference between the SSRIs and the SNRIs is that the SNRIs work to increase serotonin and norepinephrine. Um, So now one thing that's, that's really important to remember is that and I'll probably say this 10 times, so I apologize for sounding like a broken record, but every person is different when, when it comes to treating the symptoms of HD and including depression. So just because an SNRI increases serotonin and norepinephrine doesn't mean that it will be more effective than an SSRI. So a lot of times people say, well, one of them works on one chemical and the other one works on two chemicals. Two is better than one. I'd rather, you know, why not put me on an SNRI? But um, it's a very, it's a highly individualized process trying to decide which medication is going to be best for a particular patient. Right. And I think depression is one of those that we see so early on in HD. Um, It's, you know, it's always the first one and I think it's interesting how I'm so glad you said that because in the community we see people and they it's almost like I don't want to say an argument but people discuss well that didn't work for my loved one don't use that and I'm like oh no, mm-hmm. don't ever say don't because it may work for someone else um, and what your loved ones being treated may not work for that person it's it's, uh, it's so interesting exactly everyone's so different yeah mm-hmm. yeah and um, so obviously we have very high numbers of depression and anxiety in Huntington's. So, and so how, um, why, how and why are SSRIs and SNRIs helpful in HD? Um, like on like more of a pharmaceutical kind of, we know that we need them, but why are they sure. the ones that are usually used? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, what you said just a minute ago is, is really important. Uh, and that's the fact that depression and anxiety can be more common in patients with HD. So it's important to understand how to treat those symptoms. But on the flip side, you know, one of the things that we encounter a lot, and I'm sure a lot of patients and family members encounter is that Physicians and other providers who don't care for patients with HD regularly oftentimes see that diagnosis of HD and are kind of scared and they're thinking, I don't, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know how to treat someone with HD. So the depressive symptoms that occur in HD are really no different than those that occur in, you know, someone without HD who also is experiencing depression. So it, it's, mm-hmm. there's not like a secret recipe that is only helpful for patients with depression and HD. They're very similar. So um, SSRIs and SNRIs are really considered first line for depression in HD and depression in general. Um, there's a, you know, partially because 
those are the medications that have been found to be most effective. There's a lot of different SSRIs and SNRIs available. So even though they all work very similarly, some might be more beneficial for one patient and, you know, the other one might be more beneficial for the other type, for the other patient. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, one of the reasons that it can be extremely helpful in HD is all, also gets to something that you said a little bit ago, which is that depression is often one of the first signs or symptoms that we see in patients with HD. So uh, someone, you know, they have a genetic diagnosis, but they're working, they're living very normal lives. If you saw them walking down the street, you have no idea that they had HD. And so when depression, you know, appears, it's really important for us to be able to decrease those symptoms as much as possible to allow the patients to lead that normal life as long as they possibly can. So because it's one of the first symptoms, oftentimes the antidepressants are one of the first uh, treatments that we turn to to help patients remain uh, at their highest level of functioning. Mm -hmm. is, and, and is there less side effects in one versus the other, or are their side effects kind of similar? So the side effect profile of each uh, of each medication within the classes are, is different, uh, and sometimes we can use that to our advantage when we're thinking about treating patients with HD. So some of the SSRIs are considered to be more activating. So uh, you know maybe they give patients a little bit more energy. Um, so if you have a patient who's having trouble sleeping, that might not be the best choice for them because that could further make their sleeping regimen, you know, make it more difficult for them to get to sleep. Some of them can be more sedating. So again, if that patient has problems sleeping and one of these medications can help with their depression, but it also might make them a little bit sleepy, maybe we can take, have them take that medication at night and help control their depressive symptoms as well as their, um, you know, their, their trouble sleeping. So you are mm -hmm. correct that all of the all of the medications have very different side effect profiles, but again, um, everybody reacts to the medications completely differently. So just because your friend mm -hmm. says, "Hey, I took you know I took Zoloft and I had uh, you know a really bad reaction," doesn't mean that that's going to happen with you. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I find even as a community member that I've heard things that have scared me when people have said, you know, this is what happened to my loved one. And I was like, oh, I'm never putting my husband on those, that medication. And now he's on two of those medications that I swore off. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they've helped. They've really helped him. Sure. Um, so it, they worked for him. Um, so I think one thing in, in Huntington's is we always have to keep a very open mind and we have to try and try and try again because sometimes it's really hard. Uh, symptoms with HD, um, mm -hmm. and it's challenging and I think for your guys' teams. And it's a very delicate balance because we want our patients to feel empowered. We want the patients and their family members to be an active part of the decision-making process. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm saying to you that just because drug X causes side effects in your friend doesn't mean it's going to happen to you. But that's still an experience that you've heard about and is going to shape your opinion about the treatment that you take or your loved one takes. 
And so, you know, one thing that is important is, and, you know, HD families are great at this, being your own advocate when it comes to making treatment mm-hmm. decisions. We want, if you've, if you, if you've heard, um, hey, you know, my friend took this medication and they had a really bad time with it, that's a legitimate concern. And maybe the, the provider still thinks that that treatment is going to be the best option for you, but you want that explained to you. You want to have a conversation about why the provider thinks that's the best medication for you, for, uh, for you or your loved one. You want to hear what the pros and cons are. So it's a very delicate balance between understanding that everyone needs and deserves individualized care, but also drawing on your experiences. The HD community is a very tight-knit community. People talk, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. people, um, you know, communicate about their experiences, and that's also an important aspect. So just because things are individualized doesn't mean that you shouldn't speak up and be very involved in the care that you or your loved one receives. Yeah, yeah, no, that's for sure. Sometimes we only have each other to lean on. So I think that's why we're so, you know, sometimes we have the answers. The community has the answers when no one else does. So I agree with that Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, And I also think that one thing, um, these medications I'm learning, um, Dr. Schultz, is they, in my process with my husband, is they take time. I think that was my biggest thing is I I wanted to see benefit right now right now. I knew mm-hmm. my husband was struggling with this symptom and I wanted this symptom to go away. I wanted him to get relief and I wanted it now. And I think that was really mm-hmm. hard for me to understand is that I, I had to wait. And I, even working with hospice mm-hmm. right now with my husband, I wanted pain gone now, now. And they said, just wait and see. Right. And, and sure enough, it, it, I was fighting them so hard that it wasn't working fast enough. Well, then within a day, uh, two days it was, then it started working. And I was like, oh, they were right. It's just, I think it's so interesting yeah. that we want benefit right away. And sometimes we don't get benefit right away. And that's a really hard thing, especially as we're talking about these antidepressants, like you said. Uh, for providers, we want to make sure that a patient is receiving the right medication and that they are feeling better as soon as possible. One of the things that happens a lot with these medications is exactly what you said. Uh, a patient, we start someone on an antidepressant for their symptoms, and they call us in a week or two and say, hey, you know, it's not working. I, I don't feel any better. Especially when you start an SSRI or SNRI, it can take four weeks, even more for a patient to see Mm -hmm. the full benefit of those medications. So it's very Mm -hmm. difficult for a patient and the providers to balance. uh, Is it not working because this medication simply isn't the right drug for you? Or is it not working because we haven't given it enough time? We really don't want to say, hey, you know, it just isn't working. I give it time when the patient is really miserable um, but we also don't want to abandon a therapy that could be effective uh, too early. So it's, again, it's, there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's just making sure that the lines of communication are open, you feel comfortable communicating with your doctors and communicating your concerns. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, at Symposium, you mentioned there's a test that would help determine which medications would work better for someone. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So um, I think what you're referring to is a thing called pharmacogenomic testing. Uh, so there are some medications that are broken down and inactivated in our body, particularly in the liver. So we know that enzymes, uh, we know which enzymes break down these medications, and we know the genes that are responsible for uh, making those enzymes. So uh, if we think about thinking about SSRIs, if we think about the SSRI fluoxetine, uh, so that's uh, the brand name is Prozac. A lot of people have heard of that. So we know that mm -hmm. that medication gets broken down by an enzyme called CYP2D6. So everybody has differing amounts of this enzyme, and everyone's enzymes work differently. Some are more efficient. Some are less efficient. Um, so if you are someone who has a lot of this enzyme in your liver and your enzymes work really efficiently, when you take Prozac, you're going to break it down much quicker than someone with fewer enzymes. This can become mm -hmm. extremely important when we're trying to think about what dose of a medication a patient should take and even which medications a patient can take. Uh, so we assume that most patients are relatively normal in terms of the amount of enzymes that they produce and how well those enzymes work. So we usually, for Prozac, for example, we usually give patients about 20 to 40 milligrams a day. That's just based on the fact that, uh, you know, the majority of patients do okay on those doses. But there are a lot of people who need far less than that or need far more. Uh, so if you're someone who has a lot of the enzyme that breaks it down, I think when I was at Symposium, I, I, I likened the enzymes to a wood chipper. So, you know, this, if, if the enzymes are like a wood chipper, if, you, if your wood chipper is working at maximum capacity, you can put wood in it all day and it's just going to, you know, chop it up and spit it out. Mm -hmm. But if your wood chipper isn't sure. working very well, you put the wood in there and it's just going to sit there. So when you think about that with medications, if it gets chewed up and spit out, it's not going to be effective because your body is clearing it. But if your enzymes aren't working as efficiently, you're going to take the medication and they're just going to sit there. So you have this active ingredient that continuously is working because your body isn't breaking it down. Um, so again, if you're someone who has a lot of a certain enzyme, your body's going to clear the medication a lot faster than the typical person. You're going to require a much larger dose, uh, or that medication again, might not be the best choice for you. So I'm, I'm babbling a lot. So back to your question, pharmacogenomic testing is a way for us to, we draw a person's blood and we're able to look at the amount and sometimes the efficiency of some of those enzymes that break down specific medications. So when we get the results back from the lab, we get a report that says that a particular patient has a lot of one enzyme, but not a lot of another. And based on those results, we can look and see which medications in our repertoire might work best for that patient. Okay. That's so interesting to me because my, my brother has cystic fibrosis, so he has to take enzymes. And, um, mm -hmm. and has anyone ever looked? I, I know people with 
with Huntington's disease, they're, they're usually typically on very large amounts of medication. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I know as a community we talk and sometimes, you know, there, there's always like people would say, well, this would, you know, this would treat an elephant or this would, you know what I mean? It's always these, these comments are made in the community all the time that I can't believe my loved ones had it took this much medication. Has anyone, right. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know who would know that. I wonder if anyone's looked, has anyone ever looked into the enzymes of, if there, if there's anything going on with enzymes in HD? Yeah. So I can always hear really they call them an eternal then. furnace. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't know what that means. So, um, I was actually, I, I, this is a really, really good question. I don't know the specific answer. Um, and I think what you're referring to, so um, I, I went to a talk recently where someone was talking about, you'll hear this word GWAS, uh, so genome-wide <laughs> association studies. And uh, some very, very smart people are, are looking at a patient's entire genome and they're trying to find mm-hmm. these little areas in or these these signals uh, that may change the course of Huntington's disease. So there are certain like genetic markers of Huntington's disease besides just the CAG repeat length that we all know about. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm I'm probably not doing the field of GWAS analysis justice with my explanation, but. Um, we know that patients with Huntington's disease have these certain genetic markers. And so from, so as I was listening to this talk, I had the exact same question that you had of do patients with Huntington's disease produce these enzymes, these, you know, the most commonly known enzymes that break down medications at a faster rate, at a slower rate? I don't think anyone knows mm-hmm. that for sure, but I think it's a really interesting question that could help guide therapy in the future, or at least help us understand why patients, because you get insurance companies, for example, that say, we're not going mm-hmm. to pay for that, that much medication. That's way more than the normal person should take. And at this point, you mm-hmm. can't say, well, you know, this person is unique, um, so it's a very good question that I think needs to be answered. I would love to be the person who answers it, but who knows if that'll happen. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's a huge it's a huge I think it's I think it's huge. And I not obviously insurance companies, but also I think there's so many doctors out there that you know, like you said, that aren't HD experts or they don't work a lot with HD patients. And they get an HD patient in mm-hmm. their in their office or clinic and and they're scared when they look at their medication list, and they're not willing mm-hmm. to to um, up a medication or add another medication because these lists look scary to them. And if there's sure. an understanding of why they break down these medications so fast and why these large amounts of medication are needed, then maybe we'll get better treatment for our loved ones because we're able to get the amount that it takes for benefit. Right. Um, right. So... Yeah, so that's interesting. Hopefully, to be to continue, hopefully people can come together yeah. <laughs> and, and start talking about that because you know yeah. I've heard like things like I was joking about the internal furnace and it's like oh yeah well they have this constant running internal furnace well they can't, that can't be it you know mm-hmm. like okay maybe but why why you know we don't just say oh they are yeah. they just burn everything well why do they burn everything right um, right and people say oh well so, some people say Korea. Well, no, I know people that don't have Korea, that they have the rigidity, right. they're burning medicine. 
so it can't be just Korea, right? So one of the things I I, I know you were going to ask about it later potentially. So um, mm-hmm. I one of the things that we are interested in that I'm interested in particular in Huntington's disease is the autonomic nervous system. So this is basically your fight or flight reflex. So um, mm. if somebody if somebody is in the woods and they see a bear, they're going to sweat more. Uh, they're going to you know generate more blood. They're going to their heart rate's going to increase to get more blood to their muscles so they can run or fight. And then there's the there's the parasympathetic nervous system which is activated when you are it's the rest and digest system as we call it so you have a after thanksgiving you're hanging out watching football and your foot and your your food is digesting and storing it to be used mm-hmm. later there is mm-hmm. research out there that has told us that patients with huntington's disease seem to have uh, a uh, their fight reflex seems to be on uh, more frequently than the normal person. So um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they are a little bit more ramped up. So we have some data that shows that maybe their heart rate is a little bit elevated. And actually, when you said furnace, this is really what made me think of it. In people who are there, so um, I know you know Peg Napolis, who I work with very closely, uh-huh. and she has the, uh, she runs the Kids HD study. So the these are children who um, are, have the genetic mutation for Huntington's disease. They don't know it. We only collect that for research purposes. But they're years away mm-hmm. from onset, so we're able to learn a lot about the disease. Um, and their temperature, their core body temperatures are significantly higher than the healthy controls. Their heart rates are higher. Mm-hmm. Their blood pressure is higher. So that mm-hmm. could be part of the reason why these patients are just ramped up more. They're burning more energy. We're try- part of my right. research is trying to look at areas of the brain that control that, the autonomic nervous system and understand why things are dysregulated and how can we intervene to slow it down a little bit. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that because, you know, we as a community, we talk about this all the time is that our loved one will just get a picture out of nowhere. It, and mm-hmm. it's like, wait, they have this temperature. There's nothing but a temperature. There's no infection. Mm-hmm. There's no stress. There's nothing. It's just this fever spikes, and we have it, and then we freak out as, as caregivers, right? And then it goes away. Right. And it's like this happens, right. across, it happens across the community. We talk about it all the time. And it's like, why? Why did they mm-hmm. get this temperature, and now it's gone? I it. I first started hearing about this in the JHD community, and then I started hearing about it more in the Huntington's community as well, and in general, um, that these temperatures, and no one can explain them. Right. Um, so we know that the brain is affected in Huntington's, and we know that temperature and blood pressure and heart rate can be regulated by the brain. You often think of those things right. as uh, things that are mainly affecting, you know, your body, not your brain. But um, we're trying to figure out why are there certain parts of the brain that are affected in Huntington's that control these uh, control these aspects that are leading to these problems like fevers unexplained or just not even a fever, just running mm-hmm. a little bit hotter than the typical person. 
Um, and I think if we can understand that, that'll help us learn more about Huntington's disease in general and what we can do to kind of hopefully slow things down. So that's a, that's a big area of interest of mine and what my research has revolved around. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic that you're looking at that. Um, so as far as the pharma co-genomics, um, is mm-hmm. there any, like, cont- I could definitely see the pros. Um, of finding yeah. you know, the answers, but are there any like kind of cons to it? Yeah, so it's a really good question because everyone thinks if this can get me, the goal of pharmacogenomics is to get people on the right drug at the right dose at the right time. And, you know, people hear this and they say, if you can do that, why wouldn't you do that? So, you know, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. There are, there are tons of potential pros um, to pharmacogenomic testing. But as you said, there are some cons. Um, so first off, um, I guess I should say, just taking, so as I said earlier, there are dozens and dozens, I mean, there are dozens of antidepressants. So we've been talking about antidepressants, so we'll focus on that, I guess, uh, for the sake of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the again, we're... I talk a lot about, and I, I'm stealing this phrase from one of the genetic counselors here, but we're trying to eliminate the therapeutic odyssey is what they call it. And with antidepressants, as I said earlier, you start something and you really have to wait like four weeks at least to see if it's working. And if it doesn't work, mm-hmm. every trial is lasting months. So if you have to try four or five medications, you have a patient who is depressed for months and months and months. And so again, if we, if in theory we could prevent that, that is a a huge benefit. One of the problems right now is that pharmacogenomic testing is often used reactively and not proactively. So after someone has tried and failed multiple medications and, um, uh, we're kind of getting desperate. That's oftentimes when providers start to think about performing pharmacogenomic testing. But in reality, it would be far better if that could occur when you're making your initial treatment decision so that you don't go through this entire ordeal of trying to find the right drug. Some of the reasons that that doesn't happen, one of the big reasons is cost. Um, it, it is costly to get the pharmacogenomic testing, and a lot of insurance companies still don't cover it. Um, so that's probably mm-hmm. one of the biggest things. And because of that, that has kind of hindered the how well the medical community has accepted it. Um, one of the other cons is that we are assuming, when I'm talking about pharmacogenomic testing, in a very positive light, we're assuming that we would get this report and it will tell us something interesting. But it's possible that you would get that report back and most of your, um, most of your enzyme levels would be normal. And then we're kind of at, you've, you know, we've, we've drawn your blood, we've spent the time to get the results, we've spent the money, and we still haven't learned anything um, mm-hmm more than we would have. So one of the things is it might not be helpful. The other thing is that if we do get what we would describe as helpful results, 
that doesn't that still doesn't mean that that medication is going to be effective for you. If based on your genomic testing, we think that uh, uh, sertraline is the best antidepressant for you, there are a lot of factors independent of your genomic testing that would uh, predict whether or not you're going to it's going to control your depression or not. So sometimes people are tricked into thinking that the genomic testing could be a magic bullet, and if I do this, I'm going to get on the right drug and everything's going to be great. And even if we think we have the right drug, it might not work still, which is, can lead to increased frustration for providers and the patients especially. Sure. And I think one of yeah. the other things is time. Um, it, so if you have someone who is acutely depressed, it can take up to a week, if not more, to actually get the results of the pharmacogenomic testing back. So if you have someone whose depression is reaching the point where they're thinking about self-harm, we want to get someone on treatment immediately. And a lot of providers sure. have difficulty yeah. kind of wrapping their brain around the fact that we're going to have to wait a week to start treatment. Um, so yeah. there are a lot of really great benefits to it, but there are some, it, 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 it's still a technology and a science that's been around, but it's still in its infancy. So I think as the testing becomes more, uh, efficient, more advanced, we learn more about it. We're able to interpret the results, uh, more easily. I think I'm hoping that it will become more common for patients to have this done prior to starting therapies, but we're just not quite there yet. Right, right. And I'm assuming if someone was um, interested in learning more about this, they could they should probably talk to their healthcare provider. Is that where they go? Yeah, I mean, um, I think one of the advantages that HD families and patients have as uh, a lot of the patients have access to genetic counselors. So genetic counselors are always, uh, at least for me, the go-to person for talking anything genetics, genomics. Um, so if at the HD clinic that a patient goes to, they have the opportunity to ask their genetic counselor about that, that's a great resource. Um, mm -hmm. Patients shouldn't be afraid to talk to their local pharmacists. You know, I'm biased, but pharmacists are one of the most easily accessible members of the healthcare team. You know, you can't walk mm -hmm. into a Walgreens and see a doctor, but you can almost always talk to your pharmacist. Um, so sure you can always ask your local pharmacist their opinion, whether they think it would be beneficial for you or your family member based on their medical history. Um, but as you said, the team that is helping manage your medications, it's always good to talk to them about it as well. Ultimately, the genomic testing is done to help guide treatment decisions. So the people that are going to be making those treatment decisions, you want them to be a part of the conversation so that you feel as though it's helping them and the patient. Yeah. 
No, fantastic. Well, before we get off here, um, off the show, can you please tell us a little bit? I'm really interested, and I'm, I didn't get to sit through your talk, so and I don't even know if you talked about it in your talk because uh, I was running around <laughs> like a crazy person. But um, uh, I re- your research to me is so interesting. So can you can you talk to us a little bit? I know we kind of touched on it earlier, but I think also like identifying environmental factors, including medications. Uh, that may change mm-hmm. or modify the course. I find that like so interesting. So, can you talk to us a little bit what you can talk? Because I know it's research, but um, about that. Yeah, one of the resources that the HD community has access to um, are these large observational studies, like the Enroll HD study, the Track HD mm-hmm. Predict um, cohort. I mean, we've had a lot of huge studies that are extremely helpful. Um, So there aren't a lot of pharmacists working in HD and most of these data sets. uh, So these, the sponsors of these, so like CHDI is the sponsor of the enroll study. They make this, Mm -hmm. all of the data publicly available to researchers. It's free. You can Mm -hmm. download it and try to, you know, make some good out of it. So that's a resource that I've been uh, lucky enough to work with. And so looking at those things, you can, there's not, as I was saying, there's not a lot of pharmacists in HD. And so I'm interested in uh, looking at medications and trying to see if certain medications are, uh, might have some signal that they provide some benefit or they might slow the course of the disease. Uh, so really kind of drug repurposing is something that I'm interested in. And um, mm-hmm. I also, you know, pharmacists are generally very black and white thinkers. And so in HD, that's not how things are. And that just kind of yeah. hurt my brain when I first started, because when I would ask, well, why are we starting this patient on this drug? Uh, you hear a lot of times, well, that's just what we use. We have a lot of experience with it, and that's what we feel comfortable with. Whereas, you know, me as a pharmacist, I wanted to look at a chart that said, oh, you know, you should use this because of this, this, and this. So we don't have a lot of those charts. We don't have a lot of guidance like that in HD um, because everyone is so different. But trying to understand, I'm using these data sets to try to figure out which medications might be more beneficial for certain patients. Um, so one of the things that we had looked at was we looked at substance abuse. They collect information about, you know, smoking history, alcohol use, um, things like that in the enroll study. And we found that if you're using patients that are smoking, um, tend to have an earlier age of motor onset. So the disease tends to appear earlier. And so that's a, that, you know, you, you read that and you think, okay, smoking is bad. We all know that that's simple, but in HD, if you can focus on trying to have someone quit smoking and you can tell them with, you know, you have objective data to say, if you quit smoking, you may be able to ward off the disease by two or three years that's a huge amount of time. That's a huge motivator for patients. So um, right. things sure. like that, sort of those environmental factors that um, uh, I'm interested in. You know, the, the CAG repeat length accounts for about 
50 to 60% of the variance regarding when someone is going to have onset. So that means that 50 mm-hmm. to 40% of it is unexplained. And so I yeah. think that our Crazy. environments have a lot to do with that, whether it's medications, smoking, uh, whatever the case might be, understanding those things and taking a, pharma, a pharmacological approach to that. So if you find that a certain drug might have some benefit, understanding how that drug works and what it's doing in the brain and in the body might help us understand not only a new treatment but also understand the pathology of the disease, of the disease. If no one thought that that yeah. part of your body was affected, um, but this drug that only affects that part of the body is beneficial, we just learned a lot about the disease that we didn't know before. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so interesting. We, we are always, even my, my best friend, um, her, her, brother has Huntington's and, and, um, mm-hmm. and my husband, and they both are 39 and they both have a CAG of 49 and they are completely different. Mm-hmm. I mean, completely mm-hmm. different. My husband's on hospice. Um, he's in final stages. We are, we're at the very end of his journey where my best friend's brother is still living on him. He's not doing well, but he's still living on his own. Um, he, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he, he has falls and choking, but he's, he's not close to hospice. I mean, how same mm-hmm. men, you know, both men, same age, same CAG, all this stuff, why it's, their journey is so very different. Um, exactly. And so, yeah, no, I think, I think it, you know, the CAG people are like, well, my CAG is so high. I'm so, I'm so worried. It's like, well, yes, I understand mm-hmm. CAG does play a role, but there's a lot of other things as well. And yes, wouldn't it be fantastic yeah. if we knew what environmental, those environmental factors are at least. And if it's something simple that we can intervene on immediately, I think that the, you know, the ASO trials that are getting underway are extremely exciting and hope, Mm -hmm. hope, hope that they will work. Um, But, you know, if you consider that that's maybe only half the story, we really need to find the other half of what's going on so we can really provide the best care for our patients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that, I think this is, this is such exciting times um, for it's the most exciting times I've, since I've been an advocate for 15 years. Um, but I think there's still so many unanswered questions like you were saying. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yes, if we can find those answers, it definitely would help. I'm sure. And as these, these new things develop, these new treatments and therapies, um, like you were saying, how, what dose, how often, these are all questions mm-hmm. that maybe will to be answered or assisted uh, help by your by research like this. Um, right. Because, well, and we're focusing yeah. with those new treatments on the brain, but we know that the mutant Huntington protein is everywhere in your body. So, you know, yeah. in a perfect world, we will help, pre- if these treatments work, we will help preserve the brain function. But what if that mutant Huntington protein is causing damage to your gut? or to your heart or to your Mm -hmm. liver as well. If we slow the progression of the disease from the standpoint of just the brain, patients might start to see other problems emerge that we don't have the opportunity Mm -hmm. to see now. But if those treatments are effective, we're still going to have to treat. uh, There was a paper out a couple years ago called treating the whole body 
uh, in Huntington's disease. And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind as we move forward. I think we're making phenomenal strides. Um, I think the research mm-hmm. being done is mm-hmm. great. But as you said, there's still a lot that we don't know. Um, and hopefully we'll get to the bottom of some of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One day, like generation to come, they'll look back and we definitely are, are the pioneers paving the way. Um, and hopefully one yeah. day we, we will we'll have the answers and the next generation will live much different than us. But, um, but yeah, we're thankful for all the research like yours and everyone's that are going on that's helping find to identify these kind of unanswered questions. So um, uh, I think that we can wrap up the show. I actually went longer than normal, which I heard your session at symposium. Everyone wanted to keep going. <laughs> I think me being the five minute person was like, I was like, I got like shots of look of get out of here. Cause they wanted to keep talking to you. Um, <laughs> but uh, is there any final thoughts before we get off here, Jordan? Um, I think we covered a lot. I mean, I, I, I think um, the primary thing, I just, one of my final thoughts, one, I just want to thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come on your show. Um, I just recently became more involved with help for HD and it's just a phenomenal organization. Um, The families are so appreciative. It's so great for the community and I'm just so happy and honored to be a part of it. And, you know, the only other thing I'll leave with is you mentioned the research, but everyone says this, and it sounds like a cliche. I, you know, I'm still relatively new to HD. I have never seen such an eager and willing and helpful group of patients and families willing to be involved in research, wanting to do whatever Mm -hmm. they can to help advance care. And people like me cannot do anything without the patients and their family members' support. Um, So to anyone listening, I just want to thank you for all you do for the community, whether you're involved in research or not. It really does make a big difference. It really does help people like me drive things forward. Um, And, you know, I I can't express my gratitude enough to, to the patients and to their families. So thank you. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. I think that it is, it's the most amazing community. I always tell my community, I wish that we all were together for a whole nother reason besides HD, but I, I am so glad I yeah. got to meet the, the community because they, there's no one out there like the HD community as far as supporting and helping each other um, and truly caring about each other like this community. So um, we are lucky in that. We just need to eliminate the HD part, and uh, we are good. I completely so, agree. <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Schultz, for coming on with us today, and thank you so much for all your work you're doing at University of Iowa. You guys are an amazing team. I cannot say anything but positive, great things about everyone at the University of Iowa. Um, They are a Pagnopolis, and and everyone over there, you guys are doing amazing things. So thank you for all you guys are putting into Huntington's disease. Um, I don't think I have any uh, announcements. We don't start doing our education days till March. We actually did just secure March in Austin, Texas, and then we will be in Wichita, um, Kansas in August, Puerto Rico in May, and Las Vegas in October. So I do have that, but um, that's obviously very far away. The one thing that we are doing right now is we did launch all Christmas programs. Um, our first Christmas program was our uh, holiday program where we sent uh, 40 uh, families 
impacted by HD uh, uh, gift cards for their holiday uh, food um, and um, celebration. And so that actually was closed off within a day and a half. So that is how much um, our community, uh, some of our community members are in need. So Help for HD is very excited that we were able to continue that program. And we are very thankful to Teva Pharmaceuticals as well as Resortica Hawaii for making that program possible. So thank you, thank you for that. Um, We just launched our toy program, which um, we are sending families that are impacted uh, uh, have children um, living in the house that has someone impacted by HD uh, gift cards for the holidays just to bring a little bit something you know special to the children. Um, you can apply for that. That program is still open. You can apply for that uh, through our website at www.help4hd.org, and it is on the carousel. It's the very first thing. Um, so you can click on that, and it leads you right away to the portal um, to go in and fill out the information, and we'll be contacting you soon. Um, tomorrow we are launching our very first program. Um, I can say it now because it went out by email, but it will go on social media tomorrow. Um, and this is a JHD-specific program. We are in partnership with Meg's Fight for a Cure, which is an amazing foundation for juvenile Huntington's disease. They came to us this year and um, asked us to partner with them. So we are able to come together this year and bring JHD families um, a a holiday program. So if you live in a a family that um, you have a child that is uh, living with juvenile Huntington's disease, please go to the website um, and and go to the portal and fill it out and let us us be a part of your holiday season um, uh, and try to bring something to um, your child to bring them a little comfort um, through the, through this, uh, through the season. So I think that is all I have to say for now Um, until next week, everyone have a safe week and we will talk to you soon. Thanks Jordan again. Thank you.